0: You can open up your Bibles to Psalm 23. Psalm 23, a very familiar psalm. That's what we're going to be today. And as you go there, let me just give you a little a bit of an update of where we're going to be through the month of June. So, so today I'm going to preach from the psalms. I was listening to Tim Keller recently. He was saying in times of great trial, pandemics and, and, and things like this, It can be really helpful to be in the Psalms, so I want to spend some time in the Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm 23 today. Uh, Next week is real exciting because we're sending out Ben and Jay Hartzell. We're sending them to international projects, so we've got a Global Missions Sunday planned. And Denny Spitters, who's from uh, Pioneers Missions Agency, he's the vice president, he's going to be preaching next week. So we're really excited about that and the opportunity to hear from Ben and Jay and to send them out strong. And then next week will be Father's Day. I want to preach a message from the Psalms aimed at the, the generations. And so we'll, we'll do that. And then on June 28th, we'll preach another Psalm that gets at an idea of celebration. So that's where we're going to be for the next few weeks. That, that'll take us through the month of, of June. And then we're talking about what July and August are going to look like. So Psalm 23, that's where we are today. Psalm 23, and the title of this morning's message is The World's Greatest Lyric. The World's Greatest Lyric. There is no verse in the Bible more well-known than Psalm 23. It is well-known to Christians, and it's well-known to people who would not have identified as Christians. Almost every funeral you've ever been to, you've been handed a little card that oftentimes has Psalm 23 printed on the back of it. It is probably no secret that these six verses of the Bible have been more committed to memory than any other passage of Scripture. Why would I choose Psalm 23? Why? Why? Why do this? Well, let me just say that it's challenging. It's challenging for preachers to keep people's attention when we're all gathered together in the same room. That's a challenge in and of itself. You put God's people together in a Sunday morning and we're listening to preaching And it's hard to hold people's attention. And I'm just going to say this honestly. Some of y'all are better at hiding the fact that you're bored with the message than others. Okay? So I'll just leave you to sort through that. But I, I remember talking to a friend of mine who was telling me that at their last church, not Brandywine Grace, thank goodness... But at their last church, the pastor's preaching was so boring and was so hard to follow, and they found themselves so distracted that he filled his pockets with fireballs. You guys know what fireballs are. They're like that really hot cinnamon spicy candy. So he would pop those in and and just kind of jolt himself awake through the sermon. Preaching, speaking, and keep keeping people's attention in the digital, virtual world we live in is challenging. And my bet is that it's even more challenging for you listening to messages on YouTube. At least there's a live environment, typically. But right now, there's all kinds of things going on in most of your homes. Some of you have, are just uh, making breakfast. Somebody's making breakfast, you guys are eating breakfast, you're sitting around a table, you're talking, you're taking care of the kids, there's kids running around, maybe you're helping kids get through school assignments, maybe you're... Uh, Maybe you're just lounging in bed. One of you is just starting to wake up. It's hard in this environment to keep people's attention. And so H. B. Charles, who's a preacher in, in Texas, I believe, did a little podcast and he was talking about, hey, some of the things you can do to hold people's attention is to preach familiar passages of scripture. And so that's why I thought, let's preach a psalm and let's preach a familiar passage of scripture and let's do that. With this intent. The, the intent is to help us to see something that we might have forgotten because we've become so familiar with this passage of Scripture. Sometimes we miss the sheer magnitude of the truth of a Scripture because it's become so familiar to us. Sometimes we lose a sense of the big Godness of a passage of Scripture, because we've become overly familiar with it. I know that has happened to us with Psalm 23. It's happened to me. So I want to read it now, and actually, many of us know it by heart. So where you're, you're, you're seated at home, you're listening to the, to the sermon. Let's just recite it together. For those that know it, or if you don't know it and you have it open, you can read it. I think it, uh, we'll put it up on the screens as well. But for those who know it, let's try to recite it. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen, Lord. I pray that you would bless the preaching of your holy, inspired, inerrant, comforting word. Psalm 23 is a prayer of joyful confidence in God's care. Joyful confidence in God. The psalmist is joyfully confident in God. This psalm stands in stark contrast to the psalm that precedes it. So if you look at Psalm 23, you'll see that the title of it is, Why have you forsaken me? So the the content of Psalm 22 stands in stark dark contrast to the content of Psalm 23 which speaks of the Lord as our shepherd and it speaks of the poet in this case David's confidence his joyful confidence in God's care and just so you know it speaks of both it speaks of both S- situations that are ex- where we're experiencing God's blessing and situations where we're experiencing trial. And I'm just remembering that I think I may, no, maybe I didn't, I, I think I hit it. But he speaks about even though he walks through the valley of the shadow of death, We're talking about dark and depressing moments. And then he talks about the Lord preparing a table for him in the presence of his enemies and his wine cup overflowing. So this is a man, a poet, a person, a human that has found joyful confidence in God through all of life's circumstances. Are you, church, are you right here, right now, experiencing God's providential care for you in such a way that no matter what your circumstances, you are finding joyful confidence are in Him. Are you living, church, fully persuaded in Yahweh's care for you? That's what this psalm wants to do. Now, when things become overly familiar to us, sometimes we need to be shocked out of the familiarity so that we can see the rich truth that's contained in the in the in the psalm. We're so familiar with the psalm. Sometimes when I'm doing a little bit of electrical work around the house, and I don't do a lot of this, but if I'm just doing something simple, you know, repairing a lamp, repairing a, a, an outlet, sometimes when I've done it for a little bit, I start to get real confident and I start to grow a little bit dull. And so someone may, might say to me, hey, do you want me to switch off the breaker downstairs while you're doing a little bit of work? And I'll say, no, I got this because I know I can, I can, I can finagle this and I can do this in a way that's not going to result in my being shocked. And I can be kind of dull, but it just takes one zap for me to yell, hey, somebody flip the breaker for me. It shocks me out of dullness and into action. That's what we need with Psalm 23. And I found something this week that did it for me, and I believe it's going to do it for you. It was written by David Pallison. And what he has written here that I'm going to read to you is the anti-Psalm 23. It's the photographic negative of Psalm 23. And it asks this question. What does it look like when God isn't these things for you? When God isn't my shepherd? When it doesn't feel like God is functioning as my shepherd? This is what life looks like and feels like when God vanishes from sight. And you're going to be able to relate to this, as we all can. This is what he writes. It's the anti-Psalm 23. I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need. Nothing feels quite right. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated. I'm often disappointed. It's a jungle and I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert and I feel thirsty. My soul feels broken and twisted and stuck. I can't fix myself. I stumble down some dark paths. Still, I insist. I want to do what I want, when I want, how I want. But life's confusing. Why don't things ever really work out? I'm haunted by emptiness and futility, these shadows of death. I fear the big hurt and the final loss. Death is waiting for me at the end of every road, but I'd rather not think about it. I spend my life protecting myself. Bad things can happen. I find no lasting comfort. I'm alone. I'm facing everything that could hurt me. Are my friends really friends? Other people use me for their own ends. I can't really, really trust anyone. No one has my back. No one's really for me except me. And I'm so much about me. Sometimes it makes me sick. I belong to no one except myself. My cup is never quite full enough. I'm left empty. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. Will I just be obliterated into nothingness? Will I be alone forever, homeless, free falling into the void? Sartre said, hell is other people. I have to add. Hell is also myself. It's a living death, and then I die. It's penetrating, isn't it? It's the anti-Psalm 23 that actually gives meaning to Psalm 23, which I'll bet many of us have taken for granted. This is... What Palestine has written is what life looks like and feels like when God is lost from sight. It's, it's what life looks like and feels like when you have no God, when you have no Savior. But it's not like Christians can't relate to this. This is what it feels like when God vanishes from sight. Does God ever vanish from your sight? Boy, if there was ever a time where this, this George Floyd's death and systemic racism and racial inequality and political divide in our country and a global pandemic we've been through and loss of income and economy and all of these things that are just weighing down, weighing us down. Doesn't it feel sometimes, church, can't you relate to this, to feeling like the anti-Psalm where God has vanished out of sight? Something bad gets the last say when whatever you live for is not God. Something bad is always going to get the last say when whatever you live for is not God. But the anti psalm, which we can totally relate to, is not the final story. It's not the final word. The final word for us is that we do have a shepherd. And we will not want because Jesus is who he says he is for us. He is our Savior. And when you awaken and you, you, you come to life to actually see Jesus for who he is, then everything changes. And Psalm 23 becomes your and my reality. You see the person that you actually can trust. You see Jesus, the person whose glory you were created and meant to worship. You, when you see Jesus for who He is and what He's done, you love Him who loves you. The real Psalm 23, the real Psalm 23 is what it looks like and what it feels like to have Jesus put his hand on your shoulder. Have you experienced that? Do you know the feeling of Jesus' hand on your shoulder? That changes everything. But what we need, church, is we need regular reminders that we don't drift into living like and our lives looking like God has vanished from sight. He has not vanished from sight. We allow Him. We, we turn to other things. We turn away from Him. And we don't enjoy the benefits of Christ and His work and His salvation and the relationship that we have with Him. Are you enjoying that right now? Are you living in joyful confidence in the God who loves you and cares for you, who it says is our shepherd so that we shall not want. Now what the psalmist does is he describes, he uses two different illustrations, and this is why poetry can be so helpful to us because it's so vivid. He portrays the Lord as caring for us. Jesus cares for us. He portrays God as caring for for us, using two metaphors. The metaphor that he uses in the first four verses is the metaphor of a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. But then he changes metaphors in verse 5, and he begins to talk about God preparing a table for us, and feeding us, and filling our cup, anointing our head with oil. That's the that's the one that's the sentence I forgot in my memory my scripture memory. So it portrays the Lord as our shepherd and it portrays the Lord as our dinner host. As the one who prepares a table before us. So let's look for a minute just as the Lord as shepherd. What does it say about the Lord as shepherd? It says we won't want with him as our shepherd. What does he do as our shepherd? He makes Us as his sheep, his flock, lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside still waters. He restores the weakened soul. He leads us. He guides us. So what is God doing in these passages? He's providing rest for us. He's restoring us when we feel wounded and broken and weary. He's, He's feeding us in green pastures. He's taking us to places where we can get a cool, refreshing drink. He's protecting us. He's guiding us. He's doing all of the things that a shepherd does. And we see this movement in verses two through four. He's leading us. He's guiding us. He's taking us to places and making us lie down. He's taking us to places and, may, and allowing us to drink, allowing us to eat. But there's this constant movement that sounds a lot like the Old Testament Israelite. Whom God delivered from slavery and now has them moving through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. Christian, that's who we are. That's what we are, church. We're sojourners. He has rescued us from slavery, from slavery to sin. And we are on our way to the promised land, heaven, where he's going to wipe every tear from every eye, where there won't be racism any longer, where there won't be global pandemics, where there won't be job loss, loss of income. We're going to a place where it says every tear, he's going to wipe every tear from every eye, and we are going to live in a world without sin, without brokenness. In free to enjoy Jesus for all eternity. That's the promised land. That's where we're headed. But right now, church, are the wilderness years. We're sojourning, sojourners on our way to heaven. And so we can relate to this passage because we know what it's like to wander in the wilderness. Doesn't life sometimes feel like I'm wandering in the wilderness? So many things nag at us. Physical ailments, back pain, job struggles, people that treat us harshly, neighbors that we can't get along with, family members who are going through a hard time, dealing with mental illness, racism wrongness, injustice. Lord, we just can go on and on and on. We know what it's like to move through the wilderness years or move through the wilderness in our lives and embrace difficulties. But what we must remember, church, is there is a joyful confidence that follows us through, through the wilderness when we have Jesus' hand on our shoulder. Is that making a difference for you? I love this passage of Scripture where he says, He restores my soul. He renews my soul. Do you need soul renewal? Do you need soul refreshment? Do you need soul rest? The, the answer to that question is yes, always. That's why we should be setting aside time each day to rest in Jesus. Time each week to rest in Jesus. Time every month to rest in Jesus. Time every year to take a vacation away from our labors, away from our responsibilities, away from the normal rhythms of patterns in this wilderness so that we can rest in Jesus. Church, are you resting in Jesus? Do you know what it feels like to enjoy his hand upon your shoulder as you rest. We live in this broken world and we're looking for restoration. We need restoration. God promises to give that to all those who look to Him for that happiness and that restoration. I'm continuing to think about George Floyd And just the the brokenness that exists. People have been uh, asking me, hey, who are some people that you're looking to who are speaking out on issues of race, but speaking biblically, speaking prudently, speaking intelligently? And there's a a few that I want to mention. In fact, if you go into the YouTube link, they're going to be listed as resources, so I won't mention all of them here. I'll probably forget some, but Eric Mason is someone that I follow on Twitter and and he's someone that I think is speaking well to this issue. He wrote a book called Woke Church. He's a pastor down in Philadelphia. I think he's a, a great read during this time. Preston Perry is another man that, that a bunch of us have been following on Twitter and just looking at what he's saying. It's really biblical. It's really re- reasonable. And it helps us, people who are not brown, people who are not black, to think through these issues. I found that helpful. Jamal Williams, I've told you guys about him before. He pastors a a significant large church in Louisville, Kentucky, and he wrote an article that they just put on the Gospel Coalition's website. I have found that helpful as well. So check those out. If you're looking for some hope in in the brokenness of the times that we're facing and you're looking for some biblical counsel, and, and thoughtful counsel, I'd look to some of these, some of these uh, people. They will help you. There's some more listed in the link. But when I think about restoration, I think about our need for that. We need may, way more restoration of souls, sometimes than we're even aware of. Sometimes it, takes, it, it requires you to take a break in order for you to see how much you've been lacking rest. And it reminded me of a time in my life where I had this massive job to do. It was going to take us about a week to do it. And I'm going to describe it. It's going to sound crazy to you, but I'm telling you, it's the truth. I was working while I was in college over the summer, and I was working as a landscaper. And we, we were on this job. It was about five or six of us on this job, and a very wealthy homeowner had decided to build a pool up on a hill. They had built this really nice pool, but it was in the woods. They had cleared this section out, and it was very far from the house, and there was there was a need, once the pool had been laid in there, they needed to put about 60 yards of topsoil around the pool. 60 yards, I think it was like two major dump truck loads, not a pickup truck load, major. So when we arrived on the job, there was a mountain of topsoil. The challenge was, we could not use a machine to get it there. So we literally... Had to take our wheel up a wheelbarrow and shovel topsoil, which I'm telling you, if you load up a full, try this one time, load up a full wheelbarrow full of topsoil. Topsoil, get it as heavy as you can, and then try to wheel it a long distance. Now, I'm telling you guys, this was a long distance. It was uphill. We had to go across bridges. We had to lay planks down to cross ravines and ditches. And what we did was we had to get a running start from where the topsoil pile was so that we could just. Get, get up some of the hill in order to get that load of soil up and dump it and then start your track back. And we did that for six to eight hours a day for like three or four days. It was brutal. I, I felt like, have you ever worked out to the point where your shoulders feel like, have you ever worked and done something with your muscles where they burn. They burn so bad that you feel like you cannot go another step. This soil, some of us would start going. This happened inevitably. We would get tired. We'd start running. We'd get this running start, and there, would be, there was a plank and a bridge there. So you had, to, you had to navigate the plank and then go over the bridge. And sometimes you would get so tired that you would catch that wooden part of the wheelbarrow and literally catapult yourself over top the bridge, which was then a loss of a wheelbarrow full of dirt, and you had to start over again. And you were mocked by all of your fellow labor friends, and workers. But sometimes when I got to the end of the day, in the middle of the, the heat of the summer, I literally felt like I, I'm not sure if I can get this load of soil there. And when I do, I don't know if I have the strength to go back and fill up another load of soil and keep going doesn't life feel like that sometimes doesn't life feel like you are under burden that you've got all of these pressures loaded in the wheelbarrow of your life all of these things that depress all of these things that discourage, all of the loneliness that you feel, all of the pressure that you feel, and it's bearing down on you. It's this load, and you feel like you're burning, like your muscles are burning, and you can't imagine how you're going to go another minute or another day feeling like this. You need someone. You need something to provide your relief. Too often, though, we look on the horizon for happiness that comes from wrong places. And that's why we experience anti We feel completely lonely because we're looking to the wrong place to give us happiness. But all along, we have the Savior. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And he offers. He, there's so many scriptures that talk about casting that Big wheelbarrow full of burden onto the Lord. He takes our burdens. He cares for us. He loves us. He saved us by bearing the burden of our sin church, he wants to do this. Some of you are wheeling around a wheelbarrow full of loneliness and guilt and shame and burden and pressure. And God's Jesus hand is on your shoulder. Will you dump that wheelbarrow? Will you dump it onto Jesus? He says his his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He's promised this to us. Church, will you live in the joyful confidence of a Savior that bears our burdens who promises to restore your soul? You need that. You'll rise and fill the wheelbarrow again. You'll walk through the wilderness of this world, but you need those periodic moments of the shepherd's pastoral refreshment who restores our soul, who renews our life, who, who, in, who makes us feel like we're born again. And then we get up and we go face the life that he's called us to and that he's given us grace to live. I hope you'll join me and do that, church. The Lord's a shepherd. That's one of the metaphors. The other metaphor he uses is the Lord is dinner host. The Lord is your dinner host. I, that's, I, isn't that when I'm having to get your mind around? The Lord serving you dinner. The Lord Serving like Martha Stewart. Like, have you, ever, have you ever been to someone's house where they are killing it as dinner host? Can you imagine when, when, put that date on your calendar, the day we go heavenward, and we participate in what the Bible refers to as a seven-year feast, a seven-year feast where the Lord is the one cooking up the steaks. Where the Lord is the one cracking the wine bottles. And yes, he's cracking wine bottles, church. He's doing this. He says that the cup he's talking about is a cup of wine. And, and the cup of enjoyment that they're enjoying is not sparse. He doesn't just fill your wine glass and say, enough for you. He fills it to overflowing. There is joy, friends, in the presence of the Lord. When the Lord prepares a dinner for you. When Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. You start, you put that day on your calendar. You get ready for that day. Because it's going to be a day of massive, eternal enjoyment. When the Lord hosts the picnic. When the Lord hosts the dinner. But the anti-Psalm. The anti-Psalm doesn't know the Lord is host doesn't know the joy of friendly chatter that exists between the family. The anti-Psalm is a person who feels alone. No one invites me to dinner. No No one is truly, really my friend. No one's got my back. This is why we say, church, if you have Jesus... As your friend, you have everything. The world has disowned many, but those that have Jesus as friend are eternally satisfied in the provision of their friend and Savior, Jesus. We need to enjoy that, church. But we need to to speak to those who, even if they are Christians, are experiencing intense loneliness right now. You're not experiencing. It doesn't look like or feel like the Lord has prepared a table before you. That He's anointed your head with oil. That your cup is overflowing. It doesn't feel like that for you right now. For some reason, this section of Scripture really got me thinking about people who are experiencing loneliness. Being cast out in some way. Maybe judged by others. Perhaps it's the experience of those who are experiencing racism. But it reminded me, I think I was like in 5th or 6th grade, And some pretty girl in 5th or 6th grade was passing out invitations to her birthday party. And she was just hopping around the classroom, just prancing around the classroom, handing out invitations. And not everybody got an invitation. That wasn't the point of this story. But there was one girl... Lori I can still see her face. It's so clear. She was one that didn't get an invitation. She probably never did. She wasn't as clean as everybody else. She didn't dress as nice as the other kids. She was odd. I can still see her face. When everybody was opening those invitations, she sat there her desk without one. Who knows what her life was like? And sixth graders aren't very mature and don't know how to deal with that stuff, but who knows? But does she... Knew what the anti psalm felt like. What I really want her to know is that she can have a shepherd, Jesus. If you have Jesus, it doesn't matter how the world treats you. The Lord's your shepherd. He takes those deep pangs of loneliness and He saves us and He welcomes us into His family And we don't have to look a certain way. We don't have to clean ourselves up. We don't have to be of a certain socioeconomic status. We just need Jesus. And if you need Jesus, if you reach out to Jesus, He will have you. He will save you. And you will experience what it means. You'll experience the truth and the reality of Psalm 23, which is to have the Lord as your shepherd, the Lord as your party inviter, the Lord as your host. Do you feel alone? Remember that Jesus is your Savior. And remember that it is Jesus who passed through the deepest, darkest shadow. Of death, He walked through the valley of the shadow of death through intense loneliness where he quoted the psalm before. My God, my God, I'm in the valley of the shadow of death. Why have you forsaken me? I feel completely and utterly and alone. And Jesus was in a way that you have never, ever experienced aloneness. And he did that so that you never would. Church, praise him. This is our Savior. This is our Shepherd. The Lord as your dinner host. The Lord as your Shepherd. Now, let me make one comment here. Because this psalm doesn't just speak to those who are experiencing acute loneliness. Or a wheelbarrow loaded down with shame and guilt and challenge. It also speaks to those who are experiencing incredible blessing right now. And I would be remiss, I think, if I didn't say something to that group. Because I think there's a lot of people in that group in our church. David, if anyone knew what it was like to go to the best parties that were ever held in the country that he lived in in the age that he lived in, it was David. David was a shepherd boy who rose to fame and fortune as the king of Israel. He got to sit at the king's table. He knew what it was like to eat good food. He knew that it was what it was like to party with the real the real movers and shakers of the world. When you're the giant killer, when you you are the giant killer, when you subdue the, the giant Goliath, you never buy a beer again in your hometown. David knew what it was like to experience blessing. He obtained, most commentators think that he's at a place where he's obtained peaceable possession of the kingdom. He's in a time of prosperity. Why then would he write Psalm 23 then? It seems like he would write Psalm 23 when he was in a forsaken moment. Why does he do that? Because he's writing Psalm 23 because he knows that he in his prosperity is going to face temptation to forget. He's writing this to remind himself that God is the author of every blessing that he has ever enjoyed or will ever enjoy. Any peace, any tranquility, any goodness, any any joy, any happiness, he traces to the hand of God. And so in moments of prosperity and moments of valleys of shadows of death, he is going to remember that the Lord is good. And he's good all the time. And all the time, the Lord is good. He's going to remember in moments of abundance that he is indebted to God for his kindness and his mercy to him. Church, are you doing that? Here's my worry for us, church. My worry for us, and I include myself, but I'm saying to you guys too, we are some of the most blessed Christians that I've ever lived lived on the face of the earth and when I look on Twitter and I look on social media and I listen to us sometimes I hear way too much complaining which would not be in line with a Jesus that has been abundantly gracious and goodness to it good to us sometimes I think we are 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 so spoiled that we We are too prone to complain when the smallest things go wrong and we forget that every blessing, every all these things that we enjoy in in so much in abundance, can be traced back to the hand of God and his great blessing upon us. See, we got to remember Jesus in moments of prosperity. Why? Because it bridles the passions of the flesh, Calvin said, and it excites. It excites thankfulness and gratitude for God. I, I I hope that some of you, as I'm preaching this, I hope that some of you are cared for as you think about the girl who didn't get an invitation to the party and the loneliness that God takes care of when he becomes your savior. I hope, but I also hope that those of us that are given to complaint and the temptation of, of being more aware of what we don't have than what we do have are adjusted and are corrected in the kindness and love. I do it in love. I do it in mercy. I do it in the way that David would so that we wouldn't be a people that forget God and all His benefits. Amen, church? When Jesus is your everything, you're persuaded in His providential care for you. You live in joy and peace. Calvin said about this passage when he got to the end where he talked about surely goodness and mercy and the steadfast love of the Lord chasing him down the rest of his life, he ended by saying this, how unbelievably stupid it is to look for happiness in any place other than Jesus. Church, how stupid are we being this week? Are we being smart and looking to Jesus? Or are we being stupid and looking to other things. I pray this week that in a fresh way, we would be able to say, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Amen.